Chapter 18 of The Pirate's Own Book This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pirate's Own Book by Charles Elms Chapter 18 History of the Ladrone Pirates And Their Depredations on the Coast of China with an account of the enterprises and victories of Mistress Chang, a female pirate. The Ladrones, as they were christened by the Portuguese at Macau, were originally a disaffected set of Chinese that revolted against the oppression of the Mandarins. The first scene of their depredations was the western coast, about Cochin, China, where they began by attacking small trading vessels in rowboats, carrying from thirty to forty men each. They continued this system of piracy, and thrived and increased in numbers under it, for several years. At length, the fame of their success, and the oppression and horrid poverty and want that many of the lower orders of the Chinese laboured under, had an effect of augmenting their bands with astonishing rapidity. Fishermen and other destitute classes flocked by hundreds to their standard, and their audacity growing with their numbers, they not merely swept the coast, but blockaded all the rivers and attacked and took several large government war junks, mounting from ten to fifteen guns each. These junks being added to their shoals of boats, the pirates formed a tremendous fleet, which was always along shore, so that no small vessel could safely trade on the coast. When they lacked prey on the sea, they laid the land under tribute. They were at first accustomed to go on shore and attack the maritime villages, but, becoming bolder, like the buccaneers, made long inland journeys, and surprised and plundered even large towns. An energetic attempt made by the Chinese government to destroy them only increased their strength, for in their first encounter with the pirates, twenty-eight of the imperial junks struck, and the remaining twelve saved themselves by a precipitate retreat. The captured junks, fully equipped for war, were a great acquisition to the robbers, whose numbers now increased more rapidly than ever. They were in their plenitude of power in the year 1809, when Mr. Glasspool had the misfortune to fall into their hands, at which time that gentleman supposed their force to consist of 70,000 men, navigating 800 large vessels and 1,000 small ones, including rowboats. They were divided into six large squadrons under different flags, the red, the yellow, the green, the blue, the black, and the white. These wasps of the oceans, as the Chinese historian called them, were further distinguished by the names of their respective commanders. By these commanders a certain Cheng Yu had been most distinguished by his valour and conduct. By degrees, Cheng obtained almost a supremacy of command over the whole united fleet, and so confident was this robber in his strength and daily augmenting means that he aspired to the dignity of a king and went so far as openly to declare his patriotic intention of hurling the present Tartar family from the throne of China, and of restoring the ancient Chinese dynasty. But, unfortunately for the ambitious pirate, he perished in a heavy gale, and instead of placing a sovereign on the Chinese throne, he and his lofty aspirations were buried in the Yellow Sea. And now comes the most remarkable passage in the history of these pirates. Remarkable with any class of men, but doubly so among the Chinese, who entertain more than the general oriental opinion of the inferiority of the fair sex. 
On the death of Ching Yi, his legitimate wife had sufficient influence over the freebooters to induce them to recognize her authority in the place of her deceased husband's, and she appointed one Pao as her lieutenant and prime minister, and provided that she should be considered the mistress or commander-in-chief of the united squadrons. This Pao had been a poor fisher-boy, picked up with his father at sea while fishing by Ching Yu, whose goodwill and favour he had fortune to captivate, and by whom, before that pirate's death, he had been made a captain. Instead of declining under the rule of a woman, the pirates became more enterprising than ever. Cheng's widow was clever as well as brave, and so was her lieutenant Pao. Between them they drew up a code of lord for the better regulation of the freebooters. In this it was decreed that if any man went privately on shore, or did what they called transgressing the bars, he should have his ears slit in the presence of the whole fleet. A repetition of the same unlawful act was death. No one article, however trifling in value, was to be privately subtracted from the booty or plundered goods. Everything they took was regularly entered on the register of their stores. The following clause of Mistress Cheng's Code is still more delicate. No person shall debauch at his pleasure captive women, taken in the villages and open places, and brought on board ship. He must first request the ship's purser for permission, and then go aside in the ship's hold. To use violence against any woman, or to wed her without permission, shall be punished with death. By these means an admirable discipline was maintained on board the ships, and the peasantry on shore never let the pirates want for gunpowder, provisions, or any other necessity. On a piratical expedition, either to advance or retreat without orders, was a capital offence. Under these philosophical institutions, and the guidance of a woman, the robbers continued to scour the China Sea, plundering every vessel they came near. The great war mandarin, Kuo Lang Lin, sailed from the Boca Tigris into the sea to fight the pirates. Pao gave him a tremendous drubbing, and gained a splendid victory. In this battle which lasted from morning to night, the Mandarin Kualang Lin, a desperate fellow himself, levelled a gun at Pao, who fell on the deck as the piece went off, his disheartened crew concluding it was all over with him. But Pao was quick-eyed. He had seen the unfriendly intention of the Mandarin, and thrown himself down. The great Mandarin was soon after taken with fifteen junks. Three were sunk. The pirate lieutenant would have dealt mercifully with him, but the fierce old man suddenly seized him by the hair on the crown of his head, and grinned at him so that he might provoke him to slay him. But even then Powell spoke kindly to him. Upon this he committed suicide, being seventy years of age. After several victories and reverses, the Chinese historian says our men of war, escorting some merchant ships, happened to meet the pirate chief nicknamed the Jewel of the Crew, cruising at sea. The traders became exceedingly frightened, but our commander said, This not being the flag of our widow Cheng Yi, we are a match for them, therefore we will attack and conquer them. Then ensued a battle. They attacked each other with guns and stones, and many people were killed and wounded. The fighting ceased towards evening, and began again next morning. The pirates and the men of war were very close to each other, and they boasted mutually about their strength and valour. The traders remained at some distance. They saw the pirates mixing gunpowder in their beverage. They looked instantly red about the face and the eyes, 
and then fought desperately. This fighting continued three days and nights incessantly. At last, becoming tired on both sides, they separated. To understand this inglorious bulletin, the reader must remember that many of the combatants only handled bows and arrows, and pelted stones, and that Chinese powder and guns are both exceedingly bad. The pathos of the conclusion does somewhat remind one of the Irishman's dispatch during the American War. It was a bloody battle while it lasted, and the sergeant of marines lost his cartouche box. The Admiral Ting River was sent to sea against them. This man was surprised at anchor by the ever-vigilant Powell, to whom many fishermen and other people on the coast must have acted as friendly spies. Seeing escape impossible, and that his officers stood pale and inactive by the flagstaff, the Admiral conjured them by their fathers and mothers, their wives and children, and by the hopes and brilliant reward if they succeeded, and of vengeance if they perished, to do their duty, and the combat began. The Admiral had the good fortune at the onset of killing with one of his great guns the pirate captain, the jewel of the crew. But the robbers swarmed thicker and thicker around him, and when the dreaded pow lay him by the board, without help or hope, the Mandarin killed himself. An immense number of his men perished in the sea, and twenty-five vessels were lost. After his defeat, it was resolved by the Chinese government to cut off all their supplies of food and starve them out. All vessels that were in port were ordered to remain there, and those at sea or on the coast ordered to return with all speed. But the pirates, full of confidence, now resolved to attack the harbours themselves, and to ascend the rivers which are navigable for many miles up-country and robbed the villages. The consternation was great when the Chinese saw them venturing above the government forts. The pirates separated, Mistress Cheng plundering in one place, Pao in another, and Opo Tai in another. It was at this time that Mr. Glasspool had the ill fortune to fall into their power. This gentleman, then an officer in the East India Company's ship, the Marquis of Ely, which was anchored under an island about twelve miles from Macau, was ordered to proceed to the latter place with a boat to procure a pilot. He left the ship in one of the cutters with seven British seamen well armed on the 17th of September, 1809. He reached Macau in safety, and having done his business there and procured a pilot, returned towards the ship the following day. But unfortunately, the ship had weighed anchor and was under sail, and in consequence of squally weather accompanied with thick fogs, the boat could not reach her, and Mr. Glasspool and his men, and the pilot, were left at sea in an open boat. Our situation, says that gentleman, was truly distressing, night closing fast with a threatening appearance, blowing fresh, with a hard rain and a heavy sea. Our boat, very leaky, without a compass, anchor or provisions, and drifting fast on a lee shore, surrounded with dangerous rocks, and inhabited by the most barbarous pirates. After suffering dreadfully for three whole days, Mr. Glasspool, by the advice of the pilot, made for a narrow channel, where he presently discovered three large boats at anchor, which, on seeing the English boat, weighed and made sail towards it. The pilot told Mr. Glasspool they were ladrones, and that if they captured the boat they would certainly put them all to death. After rowing tremendously for six hours they escaped these boats, but on the following morning, falling in with a large fleet of the pirates, which the English mistook for fishing-boats, 
they were captured. About twenty savage-looking villains, said Mr. Glasspool, who were stowed at the bottom of the boat, leapt on board us. They were armed with short swords in either hand, one of which they laid upon our necks, and pointed the other to our breasts, keeping their eyes fixed on the officer, waiting his signal to cut or desist. Seeing we were incapable of making any resistance, the officer sheathed his sword, and the other immediately followed his example. They then dragged us into their boat, and carried us on board one of their junks, with the most savage demonstrations of joy, and, as we supposed, to torture us and put us to a cruel death. When on board the junk, they rifled the Englishmen, and brought heavy chains to chain them to the deck. At this time a boat came and took me, with one of my men and an interpreter, on board the chief's vessel. I was then taken before the chief. He was seated on deck in a large chair, dressed in purple silk with a black turban on. He appeared to be about thirty years of age, a stout, commanding-looking man. He took me by the coat and drew me close to him, then questioned the interpreter very strictly, asking who we were and what was our business in that part of the country. I told him to say we were Englishmen, in distress, having been four days at sea without provision. This he would not credit, but said we were bad men, and that he would put us all to death, and then ordered some men to put the interpreter to the torture until he confessed the truth. Upon this occasion a ladrone, who had been once to England and spoke a few words of English, came to the chief and told him we were really Englishmen, that we had plenty of money, adding that the buttons on my coat were gold. The chief then ordered us some coarse brown rice, of which we made a tolerable meal, having eaten nothing for nearly four days except a few green oranges. During our repast a number of ladrones crowded round us, examining our clothes and hair, and giving us every possible annoyance. Several of them brought swords and laid them on our necks, making signs that they would soon take us on shore and cut us in pieces, which I am sorry to say was the fate of some hundreds during my captivity. I was now summoned before the chief, who had been conversing with the interpreter. He said I must write to my captain, and tell him, if he did not send a hundred thousand dollars for our ransom in ten days, he would put us all to death. After vainly expostulating to lessen the ransom, Mr. Glasspool wrote the letter, and a small boat came alongside it and took it to Macau. Early in the night the fleet sailed, and anchored about one o'clock the following day in a bay under the island of Lantau, where the head admiral of the Ladrones, our acquaintance Pau, was lying at anchor, with about two hundred vessels and a Portuguese brig they had captured a few days before, and the captain and part of the crew of which they had murdered. Early the next morning a fishing-boat came to inquire if they had captured a European boat. They came to the vessel the English were in. One of the boatmen spoke a few words of English, and told me that he had a Ladrone pass, and was sent by our captain in search of us. I was rather surprised to find he had no letter. He appeared to be well acquainted with the chief, and remained in the cabin smoking opium, and playing cards all the day. In the evening I was summoned with the interpreter before the chief. He questioned us in much milder tone, saying he now believed we were Englishmen, a people he wished to be friendly with, and that if our captain would lend him seventy thousand dollars till he returned from his cruise up the river, he would repay him, and send us all to Macau. I assured him it was useless writing on these terms, and unless our ransom was speedily settled, the English fleet would sail, 
and render our enlargement altogether ineffectual. He remained determined, and said if it were not sent, he would keep us, and make us fight, or put us to death. I accordingly wrote, and gave my letter to the man belonging to the boat before mentioned. He said he could not return with an answer in less than five days. The chief now gave me the letter I wrote when first taken. I have never been able to ascertain his reasons for detaining it, but supposed he dared not negotiate for our ransom, without orders from the head admiral, who I understood was sorry at our being captured. He said the English ships would join the mandarins and attack them. While the fleet lay here, one night the Portuguese who were left in the captured brig murdered the ladrones that were on board of her, cut the cables, and fortunately escaped through the darkness of the night. At daylight the next morning the fleet, amounting to about five hundred sail of different sizes, weighed to proceed on their intended cruise up the rivers, to levy contributions on the towns and villages. It is impossible to describe what my feelings at this critical time, having received no answer to my letters, and the fleet under way to sail, hundreds of miles up a country never visited by Europeans, there to remain probably for many months, which would render all opportunities for negotiating our enlargement totally ineffectual, as the only method of communication is by boats that have to pass from the Ladrones, and they dare not venture above twenty miles from Macau, being obliged to come and go in the night to avoid the mandarins. And if these boats should be detected in having any intercourse with the Ladrones, they are immediately put to death, and all their relations, though they had not joined in the crime, share in the punishment, in order that not a single person of their families should be left to imitate the crimes, or avenge their death. The following is a very touching incident in Mr. Glasspool's narrative. Wednesday the 26th of September, at daylight, we passed in sight of our own ships at anchor under the island of Chung Po. The chief then called me, pointing to the ships, and told the interpreter to tell us to look at them, for we should never see them again. About noon we entered a river to the westward of the bog. Three or four miles from the entrance we passed a large town situated on the side of a beautiful hill, which is tributary to the Ladrones. The inhabitants saluted them with songs as they passed. After committing numerous minor robberies, the Ladrones now prepared to attack a town with a formidable force, collected in rowboats from the different vessels. They sent a messenger to the town demanding a tribute of ten thousand dollars annually, saying, if these terms were not complied with, they would land, destroy the town, and murder all the inhabitants, which they certainly would have done, had the town laid in a more advantageous situation for their purpose, and, being placed out of reach of their shot, they allowed them to come to terms. The inhabitants agreed to pay six thousand dollars, which they were to collect by the time of our return down the river. This finesse had the desired effect, for during our absence they mounted a few guns on a hill, which commanded the passage, and gave us in lieu of the dollars a warm salute on our return. October the 1st, the fleet weighed in the night, dropped by the tide up the river, and anchored very quietly before a town surrounded by a thick wood. Early in the morning the Ladrones assembled in rowboats and landed. They gave a shout, and rushed into the town, sword in hand. The inhabitants fled to the adjacent hills, in numbers apparently superior to the Ladrones. We may easily imagine to ourselves the horror with which these miserable people must be seized, on being obliged to leave their homes and everything dear to them. 
It was a most melancholy sight to see women in tears clasping their infants in their arms, and imploring mercy for them from those brutal robbers. The old and the sick, who were unable to fly or make resistance, were either made prisoners or most inhumanely butchered. The boats continued passing and repassing from the junks to the shore, in quick succession laden with booty, and the men besmeared with blood. Two hundred and fifty women and several children were made prisoners, and sent on board different vessels. They were unable to escape with the men, owing to that abominable practice of cramping their feet. Several of them were not able to move without assistance. In fact, they might all be said to totter rather than to walk. Twenty of these poor women were sent on board the vessel I was in. They were hauled on board by the hair, and treated in a most savage manner. When the chief came on board, he questioned them respecting the circumstances of their friends, and demanded ransoms accordingly, from six thousand to six hundred dollars each. He ordered them a berth on deck, at the after-part of the vessel, where they had nothing to shelter them from the weather, which at this time was very variable, the days excessively hot, and the nights cold with heavy rains. The town being plundered of everything valuable, it was set on fire, and reduced to ashes by the morning. The fleet remained here three days, negotiating for the ransom of the prisoners, and plundering the fish-tanks and gardens. During all this time the Chinese never ventured from the hills, though they were frequently not more than a hundred little drones on shore at a time, and I am sure the people on the hills exceeded ten times that number. On the tenth we formed a junction with the Black Squadron, and, proceeding many miles up a wide and beautiful river, passing several ruins of villages that had been destroyed by the Black Squadron, on the 17th the fleet anchored abreast four mud batteries, which defended a town, so entirely surrounded with wood that it was impossible to form any idea of its size. The weather was very hazy, with hard squalls of rain. The Ladrones remained perfectly quiet for two days. On the third day the forts commenced a brisk fire for several hours. The Ladrones did not return a single shot, but weighed in the night, and dropped down the river. The reasons they gave for not attacking the town, or returning the fire, were that Joss had not promised them success. They are very superstitious, and consult their idol on all occasions. If his omens are good, they will undertake the most daring enterprises. The fleet now anchored opposite the ruins of the town, where the women had been made prisoners. Here we remained five or six days, during which time about a hundred of the women were ransomed. The remainder were offered for sale among the Ladrones, for forty dollars each. The woman is considered the lawful wife of the purchaser, who would be put to death if he discarded her. Several of them leapt overboard and drowned themselves, rather than submit to such infamous degradation. Mai Ying, the wife of Ki Chu Yang, was very beautiful and a pirate being about to seize her by the head, she abused him exceedingly. The pirate bound her to the yard-arm, but on abusing him yet more, the pirate dragged her down and broke two of her teeth, which filled her mouth and jaws with blood. The pirate sprang up again to bind her. Ying allowed him to approach, but as soon as he came nearer her, she laid hold of his garments with her bleeding mouth, and threw both him and herself into the river, where they were both drowned. The remaining captives of both sexes were, after some months, liberated, on having paid a ransom of fifteen thousand liang, or ounces of silver. The fleet then weighed, continues Mr. Glasspool, 
and made sail down the river to receive the ransom from the town before mentioned. As we passed the hill they fired several shots at us, but without effect. The Ladrones were much exasperated and determined to revenge themselves. They dropped out of reach of their shot and anchored. Every junk sent about a hundred men each on shore to cut paddy and destroy their orange groves, which were most effectually performed for several miles down the river. During our stay here they received information of nine boats lying up a creek, laden with paddy. Boats were immediately dispatched after them. Next morning these boats were brought to the fleet. Ten or twelve men were taken in them. As these had made no resistance, the chief said he would allow them to become ladrones, if they agreed to take the usual oaths before Joss. Three or four of them refused to comply, for which they were punished in the following cruel manner. Their hands were tied behind their back, a rope from the masthead rove through their arms, and hoisted three or four feet from the deck, and five or six men flogged them with their rattans, twisted together till they were apparently dead, then hoisted them up to the masthead, and left them hanging nearly an hour, then lowered them down and repeated the punishment till they died or complied with the oath. On the 28th of October I received a letter from Captain K, brought by a fisherman who had told him he would give us all back for three thousand dollars. He advised me to offer three thousand, and if not accepted, extend it to four, but not further, as it was bad policy to offer much at first. At the same time, assuring me we should be liberated, let the ransom be what it would. I offered the chief the three thousand, which he disdainfully refused, saying it was not to be played with, and unless they sent ten thousand dollars and two large guns with several casts of gunpowder, he would soon put us to death. I wrote to Captain K, and informed him of the chief's determination, requesting, if an opportunity offered, to send us a shift of clothes, for which it may be easily imagined we were much distressed, having been seven weeks without a shift, although constantly exposed to the weather, and of course frequently wet. On the 1st of November the fleet sailed up a narrow river, and anchored at night within two miles of a town called Little Wampoa. In front of it was a small fort, and several Mandarin vessels lying in the harbour. The chief sent the interpreter to me, saying, I must order my men to make cartridges and clean their muskets, ready to go on shore in the morning. I ensured the interpreter I should give the men no such orders, and they must please themselves. Soon after the chief came on board, threatening to put us all to a cruel death if we refused to obey his orders. For my own part, I remained determined, and advised the men not to comply, as I thought by making ourselves useful we should be accounted too valuable. A few hours afterwards he sent to me again, saying that if myself and the quartermaster would assist them at the great guns, that if also the rest of the men went on shore and succeeded in taking the place, he would then take the money offered for our ransom, and give them twenty dollars for each Chinaman's head they cut off. To these proposals we cheerfully acceded, in hopes of facilitating our deliverance. The Mandarin vessels continued firing, having blocked up the entrance of the harbour to prevent the Ladrone boats entering. At this the Ladrones were much exasperated, and about three hundred of them swam on shore, with a short sword lashed close under each arm. They then ran along the banks of the river till they came abreast of the vessels, and then swam off again and boarded them. The Chinese thus attacked, 
leapt overboard and endeavoured to reach the opposite shore. The Ladrones followed and cut the greater number of them to pieces in the water. They next towed the vessels out of the harbour and attacked the town with increased fury. The inhabitants fought about a quarter of an hour and then retreated to an adjacent hill from which they were soon driven with great slaughter. After this the Ladrones returned and plundered the town, every boat leaving with its lading. The Chinese on the hills, perceiving most of the boats were off, rallied and retook the town after killing nearly two hundred Ladrones. One of my men was unfortunately lost in this dreadful massacre. The Ladrones landed a second time, drove the Chinese out of the town, then reduced it to ashes, and put all their prisoners to death without regard of either age or sex. I must not omit to mention a most horrid, though ludicrous, circumstance which happened at this place. The Ladrones were paid by their chief ten dollars for every Chinaman's head they produced. One of my men, turning the corner of a street, was met by a Ladrone running furiously after a Chinese. He had a drawn sword in his hand, and two Chinaman's heads which he had cut off, tied by their tails and slung round his neck. I was witnessing myself to some of them producing five or six to obtain payment. On the 4th of November, an order arrived from the Admiral for the fleet to proceed immediately to Lantau, where he was lying with only two vessels, and three Portuguese ships and a brig constantly annoying him. Several sail of Mandarin vessels were daily expected. The fleet weighed and proceeded towards Lantau. On passing the island of Lin Tin, three ships and a brig gave chase to us. The Ladrones prepared to board, but night closing we lost sight of them. I am convinced they altered their course and stood from us. These vessels were in the pay of the Chinese government, and styled themselves the Invincible Squadron, cruising in the river Tigris to annihilate the Ladrones. On the 5th, in the morning, the Red Squadron anchored in the bay under Lantau, the black squadron stood to the eastward. In the afternoon of the 8th of November, four ships, a brig and a schooner, came off the mouth of the bay. At first the pirates were much alarmed, supposing them to be English vessels come to rescue us. Some of them threatened to hang us from the masthead for them to fire at, and with much difficulty we persuaded them that they were Portuguese. The Ladrones had only seven junks in a fit state for action. These they hauled outside and moored them head and stern across the bay, and manned all the boats belonging to the repairing vessels ready for boarding. The Portuguese observing these manoeuvres hove to, and communicated by boats. Soon afterwards they made sail, each ship firing her broadside as she passed, but without effect, the shot falling far short. The Ladrones did not return a single shot, but waved their colours and threw up their rockets, to induce them to come further in, which they might easily have done, the outside junks lying in four fathoms of water, which I sounded myself. Though the Portuguese in their letters to Macau lamented that there was not sufficient water for them to engage closer, but that they would certainly prevent their escaping before the Mandarin fleet arrived. On the 20th of November, early in the morning, discovered an immense fleet of Mandarin vessels standing for the bay. On nearing us, they formed a line and stood close in. Each vessel, as she discharged her guns, tacked to join the rear and reload. They kept up a constant fire for about two hours, when one of their largest vessels was blown up by a firebrand thrown from a Ladrone junk, after which they kept at a more respectful distance, but continued firing without intermission till the 21st at night, when it fell calm. 
the Ladrones towed out seven large vessels with about two hundred rowboats to board them, but a breeze springing up they made sail and escaped. The Ladrones returned into the bay and anchored. The Portuguese and Mandarins followed and continued a heavy cannonading during the night and the next day. The vessel I was in had her foremast shot away, which they supplied very expeditiously by taking a mainmast from a smaller vessel. On the 23rd, in the evening, it again fell calm. The Ladrones towed out fifteen junks in two divisions, with the intention of surrounding them, which was nearly effected, having come up with and boarded one, when a breeze suddenly sprang up. The captured vessel mounted twenty-two guns. Most of her crew leapt overboard, sixty or seventy were taken, immediately cut to pieces and thrown into the river. Early in the morning the Ladrones returned into the bay, and anchored in the same situation as before. The Portuguese and Mandarins followed, keeping up a constant fire. The Ladrones never returned a single shot, but always kept in readiness to board, and the Portuguese were careful never to allow them an opportunity. On the 28th at night they sent eight fire-vessels, which, if properly constructed, must have done great execution having every advantage they could wish for to effect their purpose. A strong breeze and a tide directed into the bay, and the vessels lying so close together that it was impossible to miss them. On their first appearance the Ladrones gave a general shout, supposing them to be Mandarin vessels on fire, but were very soon convinced of their mistake. They came very regularly into the centre of the fleet, two and two, burning furiously. One of them came alongside the vessel I was in, but they succeeded in booming her off. She appeared to be a vessel of about thirty tons. Her hold was filled with straw and wood, and there were a few small boxes of combustibles on her deck, which exploded alongside of us without doing any damage. The Ladrones, however, towed them all on shore, extinguished the fire, and broke them up for firewood. The Portuguese claimed the credit of constructing these destructive machines, and actually sent a dispatch to the governor of Macau, saying they had destroyed at least one-third of the Ladrones' fleet, and hoped soon to effect their purpose by totally annihilating them. On the 29th of November, the Ladrones being all ready for sea, they weighed and stood boldly by, bidding defiance to the invincible squadron and imperial fleet, consisting of ninety-three war-junks, six Portuguese ships, a brig, and a schooner. Immediately after the Ladrones weighed, they made all sail, the Ladrones chased them two or three hours, keeping up a constant fire. Finding they did not come up with them, they hauled their wind and stood to the eastward. Thus terminated the boasted blockade, which lasted nine days, during which time the Ladrones completed all their repairs. In this action not a single Ladrone vessel was destroyed, and their loss was about thirty or forty men. An American was also killed, one of three that remained out of the eight taken in a schooner. I had two very narrow escapes. The first, a twelve-pounder shot, fell within three or four feet of me. Another took a piece out of a small brass swivel on which I was standing. The chief's wife frequently sprinkled me with garlic water, which they considered an ineffectual charm against shot. The fleet continued under sail all night, steering towards the eastward. In the morning they anchored in a large bay, surrounded by lofty and barren mountains. On the 2nd of December, I received a letter from Lieutenant Morn, commander of the Honourable Company's cruiser Antelope, saying that he had the ransom on board, 
and had been three days cruising after us, and wished me to settle with the chief on the securest method of delivering it. The chief agreed to send us in a small gunboat till we came within sight of the antelope. Then the comprador's boat was to bring the ransom and receive us. I was so agitated at receiving this joyful news that it was with difficulty I could scrawl about two or three lines to inform Lieutenant Morn of the arrangements I had made. We were all so deeply affected by the gratifying tidings that we seldom closed our eyes, but continued watching day and night for the boat. On the 6th she returned with Lieutenant Morn's answer, saying he would respect any single boat, but would not allow the fleet to approach him. The chief then, according to his first proposal, ordered a gunboat to take us, and with no small degree of pleasure we left the Ladrone fleet about four o'clock in the afternoon. At 1 p.m. saw the antelope under all sail, standing towards us. The Ladrone boat immediately anchored, and dispatched the Comprador's boat for the ransom, saying that if she approached nearer they would return to the fleet, and they were just weighing when she shortened sail and anchored about two miles from us. The boat did not reach her till late in the afternoon, owing to the tides being strong against her. She received the ransom and left the antelope just before dark. A mandarin boat that had been lying concealed under the land, and watching their manoeuvres, gave chase to her, and was within a few fathoms of taking her, when she saw a light, which the Ladrones answered, and the mandarin hauled off. Our situation was now a critical one. The ransom was in the hands of the Ladrones, and the comprador dare not return with us for fear of a second attack from the mandarin boat. The ladrones would not wait till morning, so we were obliged to return with them to the fleet. In the morning the chief inspected the ransom, which consisted of the following articles. Two bales of superfine cloth, two chests of opium, two casks of gunpowder, and a telescope, the rest in dollars. He objected to the telescope not being new, and said he should detain one of us till another was sent, or a hundred dollars in lieu of it. The comprador, however, agreed with him for the hundred dollars. Everything being at length settled, the chief ordered two gunboats to convey us near the antelope. We saw her before dusk, when the Ladrone boat left us. We had the inexpressible pleasure of arriving on board the antelope at 7 p.m., when we were most cordially received and heartily congratulated on our safe and happy deliverance from a miserable captivity which we'd endured for eleven weeks and three days. Signed, Richard Glasspool, China, December the 8th, 1809. The Ladrones have no settled residence on shore, but live constantly in their vessels. The afterpart is appropriated to the captain and his wives. He generally has five or six. With respect to the conjugal rights, they are religiously strict. No person is allowed to have a woman on board unless married to her according to their laws. Every man is allowed a small berth, about four feet square, where he stows with his wife and family. From the number of souls crowded in so small a space, it must naturally be supposed that they are horridly dirty, which is evidently the case, and their vessels swarm with all kind of vermin. Rats in particular, which they encourage to breed, and eat as great delicacies. In fact, there are very few creatures they will not eat. During our captivity we lived three weeks on caterpillars boiled with rice. They are much addicted to gambling, and spend all their leisure hours at cards and smoking opium. At the time of Mr. Glasspool's liberation, the pirates were at the height of their power, 
After such repeated victories over the Mandarin ships, they had set at naught the imperial allies, the Portuguese, and not only the coast but the rivers of the Celestial Empire seemed to be at their discretion. And yet their formidable association did not many months survive this event. It was not, however, defeat that reduced it to the obedience of the laws. On the contrary, that extraordinary woman, the widow of Cheng Yi, and the daring power were victorious and more powerful than ever when dissensions broke out amongst the pirates themselves. Ever since the favour of the chieftainess had elevated power to the general command, there had been enmity and altercations between him and the chief, Opo Tai, who commanded one of the flags or divisions of the fleet, and it was only by the deference and respect they both owed to Cheng Yi's widow that they had been prevented from turning their arms against each other long before. At length, when the brave power was surprised and cooped up by a strong blockading force of the emperor's ships, Opo Tai showed all his deadly spite and refused to obey the orders of Pao, and even of the chieftainess, which were that he should sail to the relief of his rival. Pao, with his bravery and usual good fortune, broke through the blockade, but when he gave in contact with Opo Tai, his rage was too violent to be restrained. Opo Tai at first pleaded that his means and strength had been insufficient to do what had been expected of him, but concluded by saying, Am I bound to come and join the forces of Pao? Would you then separate before us? cried Pao, more enraged than ever. Opotai answered, I will not separate myself. Pao, why then do you not obey the orders of the wife of Cheng Yi and my own? What is this else than separation, that you do not come to assist me when I am surrounded by the enemy? I have sworn it that I will destroy thee, wicked man, that I may do away with this soreness on my back. The summons of power when blockaded to Opotai was in language equally figurative. I am harassed by the government's officers outside in the sea. Lips and teeth must help one another. If the lips are cut away, the teeth will feel cold. How shall I alone be able to fight the government forces? You should therefore come to the head of your crew to attack the government squadron in the rear. I will then come out of my station and make an attack in front. The enemy be so taken in the front and rear will, even supposing we cannot master him, certainly be thrown into disorder. The angry words of Pao were followed by others, and then by blows. Pao, though at the moment far inferior in force, first began the fight, and ultimately sustained a sanguinary defeat and the loss of sixteen vessels. Our loathing for this cruel, detestable race must be increased by the fact that the victors massacred all their prisoners, or three hundred men. This was the death-blow to the confederacy which had so long defied the emperor's power, and which might have effected his dethronement. Opo Tai, dreading the vengeance of Pao and his mistress, Cheng Yi's widow, whose united forces would have quintupled his own, gained over his men to his views, and proffered a submission to government, on condition of free pardon and a proper provision for all. The petition of the pirates is so curious a production, and so characteristic of the Chinese that it deserves to be inserted at length. It is my humble opinion that all robbers of an overwhelming force, whether they had their origin from this or any other course, have felt the humanity of government at different times. Liang Shang, who three years plundered the city, was nevertheless pardoned, and at last made a minister of state. Wakang often challenged the arms of the country, 
and he was suffered to live, and at last made a cornerstone of the empire. Zhu Ming pardoned seven times Mang Huao, and Quang Kung three times set Chao Chao at liberty. Ma Huen persuaded not the exhausted robbers, and Yo Fai killed not those who made their submission. There are many instances of such transactions both in former and recent times, by which the country was strengthened, and government increased its power. We now live in a very populous age. Some of us could not agree with their relations, and were driven out like noxious weeds. Some, after having tried all they could, without being able to provide for themselves, at last joined bad society. Some lost their property by shipwrecks. Some withdrew into this watery empire to escape from punishment. In such a way, those who in the beginning were only three or five were in the course of time increased to a thousand or ten thousand, and so it went on increasing every year. Would it not have been wonderful if such a multitude, being in want of their daily bread, had not resorted to plunder and robbery to gain their subsistence, since they could not in any other manner be saved from famine? It was from necessity that the laws of the empire were violated, and the merchants robbed of their goods. Being deprived of our land and of our native places, having no house or home to resort to, and relying only on the chance of wind and water, even could we for a moment forget our griefs, we might fall in with a man of war, who with stones, darts, and guns would knock out our brains. Even if we dared to sail up a stream, and boldly go on, with anxiety of mind under wind, rain, and stormy weather, we must everywhere prepare for fighting. Whether we went to the east or to the west, and after having felt all the hardships of the sea, the night dew was our only dwelling, and the rude wind our meal. But now we will avoid these perils, leave our connections, and desert our comrades. We will make our submission. The power of government knows no bounds. It reaches to the islands in the sea, and every man is afraid, and sighs. Oh, we must be destroyed by our crimes. None can escape who opposeth the laws of the government. May you then feel compassion for those who are deserving of death. May you sustain us by your humanity. The government that had made so many lamentable displays of its weakness were glad to make an unreal parade of its mercy. It was but too unhappy to grant all the conditions instantly, and in the fulsome language of its historians, feeling that compassion is the way of heaven, that it is the right way to govern by righteousness, it therefore redeemed these pirates from destruction, and pardoned their former crimes. Opotai, however, then struck his free flag, and the pirates were hardly in the power of the Chinese, when it was proposed by many that they should all be treacherously murdered. The governor happened to be more honourable and humane, or, probably, only more politic than those who had made this foul proposal. He knew that such a bloody breach of faith would forever prevent the pirates still in arms from voluntarily submitting. He knew equally well, even weakened as they were by Opotai's defection, that the government could not reduce them by force, and he thought by keeping his faith with them he might turn the force of those who had submitted against those who still held out and so destroy the pirates with the pirates. Consequently, the eight thousand men it had been proposed to cut off in cold blood were allowed to remain uninjured, and their leader, Opotai, having changed his name to that of Ho Bin, or the Lustre of Instruction, was elevated to the rank of an imperial officer. 
the widow of Cheng Yi and her favourite Pao continued for some months to pillage the coast and to beat the Chinese and the Mandarin's troops and ships, and seemed almost as strong as before the separation of Opotai's flag. But that example was probably operating in the minds of many of the outlaws, and finally the lawless heroine herself, who was the spirit that kept the complicated body together, seeing that Opotai had been made a government officer, and that he continued to prosper, began also to think of making her submission. I am, said she, ten times stronger than Opotai, and government will perhaps, if I submit, act towards me as they have done with Opotai. A rumour of her intentions having reached shore, the Mandarin sent off a Captain Chow, a doctor of Macau, who, said the historian, being already well acquainted with the pirates, did not need any introduction, to enter on preliminaries with them. When the worthy practitioner presented himself to Pao, that friend concluded he had been committing some crime, and had come for safety to that general refugium peccatorum, the pirate fleet. The doctor explained, and assured the chief, that if he would submit, government was inclined to treat him, and his, far more favourably and more honourably than Opotai. But if he continued to resist, not only a general arming of all the coasts and rivers, but Opotai was to proceed against him. At this part of his narrative, our Chinese historian is again so curious that I shall quote his words at length. When Fai Hyang Chao came to Pao, he said, Friend Pao, do you know why I come to you? Pao, thou hast committed some crime, and comest to me for protection. Chao, by no means. Pao, you will then know how it stands concerning the report about our submission, if it is true or false. Chao. You are again wrong here, sir. What are you in comparison with Opotai? Pao, who is bold enough to compare me with Opotai? Chao, I know very well that Opotai could not come up to you, sir. But I mean only that since Opotai has made his submission, since he has got his pardon and been created a government officer, how would it be if you with your whole crew were also to submit, and if His Excellency should desire to treat you in the same manner? and to give you the same rank as Opotai. Your submission would produce more joy to government than the submission of Opotai. You should not wait for wisdom to act wisely. You should make up your mind to submit to the government with all your followers. I will assist you in every respect. It would be the means of securing your own happiness and the lives of all your adherents. Chang Pao remained like a statue without motion, and Fai Hueng Chao went on to say, you should think about this affair in time, and not stay till the last moment. Is it not clear that Opotai, since you could not agree together, has joined government? He, being enraged against you, will fight, united with the forces of the government, for your destruction. And who could help you, so that you might overcome your enemies? If Opotai could before vanquish you quite alone, how much more can he now, when he is united with the government? Opotai will then satisfy his hatred against you, and you yourself will soon be taken, either at Wei Chao or at Niao Chao. If the merchant vessels of Hu Chao, the boats of Quang Chao, and all the fishing vessels unite together to surround and attack you in the open sea, you will certainly have enough to do. But even supposing they should not attack you, you will soon feel the want of provisions to sustain you and all your followers. It is always wisdom to provide before things happen. 
Stupidity and folly never think about future events. It is too late to reflect upon events when things have happened. You should therefore consider this matter in time. Pao was puzzled, but after being closeted for some time with his mistress, Cheng Yi's widow, who gave her high permission for him to make arrangements with Dr. Chow, he said he would repair with his fleet to the Boca Tigris, and there communicate personally with the organs of government. After two visits had been paid to the pirate fleets by two inferior mandarins, who carried the inferior proclamation of free pardon, and who, at the order of Ching Yi's widow, were treated to a sumptuous banquet by Pao, the governor-general of the province went himself in one vessel to the pirate ships that occupied a line of ten li off the mouth of the river. As the governor approached, the pirates hoisted their flags, played on their instruments, and fired their guns, so that the smoke rose in clouds, and then bent sail to meet him. On this, the dense population that were ranged thousands after thousands along the shore to witness the important reconciliation became sorely alarmed, and the governor-general seemed to have had a strong inclination to run away. But in brief space of time, the long-dreaded widow of Cheng Yi, supported by the Lieutenant Pao, and followed by three other of her principal commanders, mounted the side of the governor's ship, and rushed through the smoke to the spot where His Excellency was stationed. When they fell on their hands and knees, shed tears, knocked their heads on the deck before him, and received his gracious pardon, and promised for future kind treatment. They then withdrew, satisfied, having promised to give in a list of their ships, and of all else they possessed within three days. But the sudden apparition of some large Portuguese ships and some government war junks made the pirates suspect treachery. They immediately set sail, and negotiations were interrupted for several days. They were at last concluded by the boldness of their female leader. If the Governor-General, said this heroine, a man of the highest rank, could come out to us quite alone, why should not I, a mean woman, go to the officers of government? If there be danger in it, I take it all on myself. No person among you need trouble himself about me. My mind is made up, and I will go to Canton. Pao said, If the widow of Cheng Yi goes, we must all fix a time for her return. If this pass without our obtaining any information, we must collect all our forces and go before Canton. This is my opinion as to what ought to be done. Comrades, let me hear yours. The pirates then struck with the intrepidity of their chieftainess, and loving her more than ever, answered, Friend Pao, we have heard thy opinion, but we think it better to wait for the news here, on the water, than to send the wife of Cheng Yi alone to be killed. Nor would they allow her to leave the fleet. Matters were in this state of indecision, when the two inferior mandarins, who had before visited the pirates, ventured out to repeat their visit. These officers protested no treachery had been intended, and pledged themselves that if the widow of Ching Yi would repair to the governor, she would be kindly received, and everything settled to their heart's satisfaction. With this, in the language of our old ballads, up spoke Miss Cheng. You say well, gentlemen, and I will go myself to Canton with some of our other ladies, accompanied by you. And accordingly, she and a number of the pirates' wives and their children went fearlessly to Canton, arranged everything, and found that they had not been deceived. The fleet soon followed. On its arrival, every vessel was supplied with pork and with wine, and every man, 
in lieu, it must be supposed, of the share of the vessels and plundered property he resigned, received at the same time a bill for a certain quantity of money. Those who wished it could join the military force of government for pursuing the remaining pirates, and those who objected dispersed and withdrew into the country. This is the manner in which the great red squadron of the pirates was pacified. The valiant Pau, following the example of his rival Opo Tai, entered into the service of government, and proceeded against such of his former associates and friends as would not accept the pardon offered them. There was some hard fighting, but the two renegados successfully took the chief Shi Ul, forced the redoubtable captain, styled the Scourge of the Eastern Ocean, to surrender himself, drove Frog's Meal, another dreadful pirate, to Manila, and finally, and within a few months, destroyed or dissipated the wasps of the ocean together. I have already noticed the mark intention of the Chinese historian to paint the character of Pao in a poetic or epic manner. When describing the battle with Shi Ul, he says, They fought from seven o'clock in the morning till one at noon, burnt ten vessels, and killed an immense number of the pirates. Shi Ul was so weakened that he could scarcely make any opposition. On perceiving this through the smoke, Pao mounted on a sudden the vessel of the pirate, and cried out, I, Chang Pao, am come, and at the same moment he cut some pirate to pieces. The remainder were then hardly dealt with. Pao addressed himself in an angry tone to Shi Ul, and said, I advise you to submit. Will you not follow my advice? What have you to say? Shi Ul was struck with amazement, and his courage left him. Pao advanced and bound him, and the whole crew were then taken captives. From that period, says our Chinese historian, in conclusion, ships began to pass and repass in tranquillity. All became quiet on the rivers and tranquil on the four seas. People lived in peace and plenty. Men sold their arms and bought oxen to plough their field. They buried sacrifice and said prayers on top of the hills, and rejoiced themselves by singing behind screens during daytime, and, grand climax to all, the governor of the province, in consideration of all his valuable services in the pacification of the pirates, was allowed by an edict of the Son of Heaven to wear peacock's feathers with two eyes. End of chapter 18